it made us realize that there was an opportunity for people like us, you know, for clothing that's not traditional, you know, like outside of the traditional binary of women's wear and men's wear, you know, there was a big unmet need. And that was kind of the impetus for us starting the brand. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn the big surprise when these entrepreneurs did their market research for the first time, why you should have one flagship product when you do not have experience in the industry yet, and what is a fit party and why you should hold one when creating a clothing brand. Before our show, I wanted to let you know about Shopify Inbox. It's a brand new free sales channel you can set up right now in your admin. With Inbox, you can manage all the customer conversations from your store and social media in one place. Plus, chat anywhere, anytime using the mobile app or on the web. Most importantly, Inbox can help you close sales since 70% of Shopify Inbox conversations are with customers making a purchasing decision. Use the power of chat to turn browsers into buyers. For more information, visit shopify.com slash chat. Today, I'm joined by Kelly and Laura Moffitt from Kieran Finch. Kieran Finch is a conscientious menswear-inspired apparel for women and non-binary folks and was started in 2015 and based out of Brooklyn, New York. Welcome, Kelly and Laura. Hey there. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, we're really excited to be here. Yeah, excited to have you you both on. So tell us more about the idea behind this business because the, the company, the idea behind it all started when you were looking for clothes for your wedding, right? Yeah, it was 2014 and we were, you know, getting organized and planning our wedding. And obviously clothing is kind of a key component of that. And both of us, uh, you know, were not really into dresses and that wasn't really part of our wardrobe. And so, you know, as a woman that's getting married, if you don't wear a dress, it's, you're kind of, uh, there's not, there were not a lot of options back then. And so, you know, we were looking online, we were looking in stores and it was a really demotivating and frustrating experience. Um, we ended up getting custom suits made from a, a local Brooklyn tailor, which was like an amazing experience, but, you know, it made us realize that there was an opportunity for people like us, you know, for clothing that's not traditional, you know, like outside of the traditional binary of women's wear and men's wear, you know, there was a big unmet need. And that was kind of the impetus for us starting the brand. Got it. And and you you mentioned that to us that you also talked to others as well and got their feedback too. Tell us more about that. Like when you discovered that this is a problem for you, you solved it by by getting it custom made. And then what led you to find out if other people had a similar challenge? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I was a marketer by trade before I started the brand. And so for me, I was always very focused on like, okay, that's great. That's a great idea. But is, what's your research to support it? And I had done a lot of market research in my in my previous life. And so for me, the first step was like, okay, let's validate the business. And so we, you know, we did the kind of like did surveys. We, you know, did one-on-one, you know, interviews with people to really find out like if there was, you know, was there a true unmet need? And, you know, if so, like, what was the kind of like underlying frustration? Like, what could we do to solve it? Like, what are the products that people were looking for? Um, you know, and I think that we were able to kind of validate the initial idea by talking to those people, you know, like friends and friends of friends and kind of, you know, getting beyond your own network. That was what we did. Yeah. I mean, we even, uh, spent some time just going to some local, uh, bars and, and combing folks like out, you know, out in the wild, if you will. Um, from, so from everything from the folks that we knew to, to complete strangers. Um, and I think that that's something that's really important. A lot of folks, I feel like when they first get this idea of a business, they're like, Oh, I'm not going to tell anyone. Someone's going to steal my idea. But quite frankly, it is really hard to, to start a business and no one has the same passion that you're going to have for this. And maybe there's a few other folks, but, but, you know, taking that activation energy is a really big leap into the actual creation of your business. So I think that the validation from folks is far more important. Yeah. I think what you're getting at too, is that the, you know, the, the very minimal risk that someone can quote unquote, take your idea is totally worth 
uh, taking in order for you to even get started and get this kind of uh, initial research going. And the way you, you explained it too was um, it, it's not as kind of formalized or professional as it's, it might sound like it's required. When you're doing market research, people think, oh, you got to, you know, uh, have some like uh, some scientific lab coat on and, and run these experiments. But you're saying that you just went out and talked to people that you knew and then the friends of friends and like going to, to, to venues or places that you can find other people that might be potential customers and just asking them and talking to them. Now, when, when you were first starting, were you also looking at, at understanding people's, um, I guess, thoughts around the wedding attire or was it broader than that? It was definitely much broader than that. And <clears throat> we also didn't really get into the wedding market until like much later in our business. Um, so it was, it was basically the impetus came from us searching for wedding clothing. But at the end of the day, what it came down to was we discovered from, you know, our own kind of like thinking and speaking to other people that the overall shopping experience was incredibly demotivating for our customer, right? They, you know, they were, they would go shopping, you know, everyone's like, oh, let's go shopping. Let's get excited. I go buy a new outfit. And then you would go and then you'd, you'd see stuff in the women's section that really didn't feel right for you and, you know, didn't match your, you know, personal aesthetic, then go to the men's section, see stuff that you really, really liked and want to wear, but then like, ultimately it's not designed to fit your body. And we heard that like over and over and over again. And we still hear that to this day. We did focus group uh, yesterday, you know, to, you know, talk to our customers and we still hear that same insight, which is like, I go shopping and it's so demotivating because it's, I'm, it, there's not a, there's not a place, you know, for me. Except for care. Except for us. Right. <laughs> but, but, you know, still like people still go out into the world and they're still looking and we're still acquiring new customers all the time. So, you know, that still kind of rings true that fashion is still incredibly binary. Now, I want to definitely get into this topic of like of the of this demotivating side of it. Now, when you were going and talking to, uh, you know, again, potential customers, potential dem- demographic, were there any surprising insights that uh, I for for either of you that were wow, I didn't, didn't even think about that. Like, were some were some things just kind of validating what you already thought, or were there other things that surprised you? Yeah, I think the thing that has surprised us just and still surprises us, like clothing. When you think about clothing, you think, okay, it's fabric. I put it on to cover up it's I use it as a way to keep warm you know I I sometimes use it to to wear to special occasions but what we've begun to discover that clothing is is so important to your psychological well-being and how you present yourself to the world it's the first thing that people see when they see you so it generates all these different uh, emotions and I think the thing that we discovered is that there was this incredible insight about when you're not able to wear the clothing that makes you feel good, you don't feel like you can be your true self. And so therefore, when you do find clothing that makes you feel good and matches your internal kind of personality, you become that much more confident, you feel authentic. Other people notice that you feel confident, they notice that your your outlook is more positive. So I think that we didn't, you know, we just thought it was annoying that you couldn't find clothing to wear. Um, but I think that we've discovered that it's just so much more important than that and that it actually does impact people incredibly emotionally to have clothing that makes them feel good. And I think it's it do, it's not just for our, um, you know, customer base. Certainly, I think it's exacerbated by the fact that time and time again, they've had this demotivating experience and they can't represent themselves authentically. But, you know, I, I have a very distinct memory of speaking to a friend of mine who was telling me they were going on an interview and she was putting on her red power lipstick, right? So this is this, the way that you can show the world how you feel is just so, so important. And, and clothes are a big part of that. I think that there's also been a shift in society of more acceptance of folks to present themselves outside of the binary. And there's been an interesting growing uh, customer base of like parents of kids who are presenting themselves perhaps as non-binary or trans. And they've had this experience where the parent has, you know, gone shopping with their child for a long time and it's never it's never really this experience that uh, is good for either party. Um, and we'll get these emails of parents saying, oh, I'm so grateful for your existence because I can finally, you know, give my kid the an outfit that feels right to them to go to a bar mitzvah or their graduation or, you know, whatever, it, whatever that special event is. And that's that's something that's really powerful as well. Yeah, I, I think, like you mentioned, it's not just the, the clothing, it's that there's 
that, that there's representation or that there's, there's an industry that cares to create clothing for, for them too. And you mentioned this, this, this word uh, frequently, which is demotivating. And, and I think it's an important one because it, it, when you were setting out to solve or to solve this problem of a demotivating experience, was it as simple as having clothes and products that, that fit their aesthetic and their body? Or were there other things that can, that, that you focus on either at the beginning or now that can make that shopping experience more delightful? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, uh, you know, because we are a small brand and because we really do understand our customer, it's really important to be to have like a really close connection with our customer. Right. So that they feel, you know, their experience has been like, I'll tell you my experience. So I went shopping for a pair of jeans, you know, in my 20s or and this has happened many times. I went to the women's section. I felt these weren't right for me. I went to the men's section and the saleswoman said, oh, excuse me, ma'am you know, the women's department is downstairs and like that feeling is like awful. You feel terrible. Right. So I think for us, it's really important that we provide an approachable, safe, judgment-free zone for our customer, whether that be the way that we interact with them via email, whether we be the way that we interact them through, uh, you know, our website, our chat, our copy on our website, it all needs to feel very welcoming and approachable so that our customer says, oh, wow, there is a place for me. There's a place that gets me. Um, that is this judgment-free zone where they can just know that they can be themselves and and not worry about about uh, you know feeling feeling judged. Yeah, especially as we've gotten into the more formal clothes as well. A lot of people have never worn a suit before that come to us, and so there are emotions attached to that, right? So we need to sometimes present as part of that journey for them is education. Part of it is um, a fit. You know, um, part of it is just being like, you know what, you're going to look great because this is this is how you feel right. Mm. Yeah. Speak. Can you say more about the, the education piece? Because I think there's an important factor about how the 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 product just, just never existed before that for a lot of your customers. This is like their first time buying this kind of clothing that requires a lot of uh, education from you. So tell us more about how you're able to kind of bridge that gap to help them make informed decisions when they are shopping uh, for your products. Yeah, absolutely. I think we approach it in a variety of different ways. Um, one is uh, we do a lot of education through our blog, um, through our Dapper Scouts program, which is um, we're taking folks that are some of them are, you know, bigger Instagram people and some are just people that are have really cool style and are doing interesting things in the community. Um, so talking a little bit about, you know, style inspiration, talking a little bit about like what pairs well, because um, some people will get like an email from someone. They're like, ah, all I really wear is like gym shorts and a shirt and I have to go. I'm getting married. What like help me, please. And so it's from that perspective, it's talking a little bit about, you know, what's the difference between um, a dress shirt and a casual shirt. Right. It's um, creating an opportunity for in-person fittings when that feels uh, like we are is a, is a safe uh, space from a COVID perspective, um, but also we're, we're exploring a lot of virtual options for folks right now. Um, so it's, it's a, and it's also just when someone sends us an email, there, it isn't a barrier of like, oh, well, you're supposed to know this stuff. No, it's like the, the people that work in our customer service are, okay, like, let me help you get there. You have a question? Great. Thanks. Like, here's my suggestion. Yeah. And I think Kelly's getting at the fact that for, you know, like when we look at traditional fashion, right, it's like generally skinny, you know, tall models, you know, and there's not a lot of representation around like, you know, outside that typical framework body type, although that's changing, right? We're seeing a lot more representation of plus size models, um, but I think it's really important for us to provide representation to show people like, yeah, there are people that look like you. There are people that wear clothes like you. Like it's okay to be able to dress, you know, outside of the traditional mold. And I think part of our goal is to be able to provide that visual representation for people so that they can see that there are people like them out there dressing the way that they want to. Yeah, I think I think one area that, that uh, the, of your brand that I think this really stands out is when it comes to the, the modeling for your clothing and, and looking at the website. It already seems more inclusive and diverse than a typical you know clothing or fashion website. Can you say more about the decisions behind behind that? 
Yeah, thank you. Um, that that means a lot because it's something that we put a lot of time and effort into. Um, you know, the most of our models are just real folks. Um, everything from someone that we've found on a subway platform and said, hey, you have really cool style. Do you want to come model for us to people that apply um, via our, our, you know, web platform? Um, and they're just, they're genuinely great people and also have really cool style. Um, and so I think that that kind of approachability comes across when you see the photos of them and that allows for people to, to see them as well. Um, and, you know, we, we try really hard to add in lots of new faces as well. Um, you know, we'll have bigger numbers in our, uh, our photo shoots because we want people to see different, the way it sits on different people's bodies. Yeah, right. You need to see it on different lots of different types of body types to know if it's right for you. Yeah, definitely makes sense. So now, once you set out to to did this market research and realized that other people uh, like you are facing the same kind of problems, what were the kind of next steps to actually? Like was I guess rather before we get there, was it immediate that oh there is an opportunity to start a business here, or what were some kind of follow on steps after your market research kind of validated that this was a real problem? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a, I remember there being an urgency because we definitely, there was a few, you know, businesses in the space that were beginning to kind of, uh, you know, we're not without competitors, there are competitors. And, but it was kind of that time where things were beginning to shift. And I felt like, okay, this is a great opportunity. We really do need to jump on it. However, we, neither of us had any fashion background. So for us to kind of jump on the this opportunity that we definitely saw definitely came with challenges, right? Like I worked in pharmaceutical marketing. Kelly was a teacher. And so we didn't know anything about fashion at all. Um, so that was definitely a big learning curve. Um, I think that we had the marketing background where we kind of felt solid in the foundation of the business, but making the product, we had no idea what we were doing. Um, and, and I'm happy to you know tell yeah. you a little bit. About yeah, that it tells journey. more about. The, I think this is a, a, a state that a lot of entrepreneurs are at, where they're aspiring to start a business, but and they have a passion for solving a specific problem, probably because they're facing it themselves, but they don't have the expertise. So tell us more about how you kind of navigated this space when you just have never done it before. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things in the market research that we did ask is, I think that we knew because we didn't have a fashion background that we wouldn't be able to just like launch like an entire collection of like all different types of garments, right? So we thought to ourselves, like, let's choose a flagship product. Let's find out what the flagship product should be. And then like, let's make that product really amazing. So in our market research, we asked people like, what's the one product that you're basically like, your wish product, like you're dying for. And at that time, what people said was they really wanted an amazing button-up shirt. We were like, great, let's make an amazing button-up shirt. And so that was kind of our initial product launch. And we basically, we joined a fashion accelerator, fortunate enough that at the time in Brooklyn, there was a place called the Brooklyn Fashion Design Accelerator that was, you know, this great incubator space that had a bunch of other small fashion businesses. It had a sample room. It had mentors, people that knew how to make garments. And they basically held our hand, you know, all the way through the initial process of making making the product. And so we were very fortunate to have that space. Um, but yeah, we went with a flagship product. We focused on that. And that was kind of the entry point into getting into the space. Yeah, I like this idea of just when you are, again, brand new, don't try to do too many th different things. Try to make one product very successful and try to do that one as best as possible. So tell us more about that. So the button-up shirt was what you went with. What were the steps involved in designing that? Because that's not, that's obviously way harder than just like a t-shirt, right? This is it, there's a lot more, you wouldn't think about it maybe at face value, but like there's more kind of technology that's involved in designing a button-up shirt. So tell us more about that experience. Yeah, there's actually a lot of different pieces that go into making a button-up shirt that we, as we said, had no idea. Um, the good news is we we now do, um, but it's everything from like, there's a thing called grading and marking, right? So, you, okay, you now have a shirt, but then you need to make a size range, right? So you you take that one shirt and then you figure out how, how you're going to incrementally get to the different sizes. Um, who are you going to work partner with from a factory perspective? Um, who is going to be your pattern maker, right? Developing that initial pattern, right? Um, and then fabric, sourcing, all these things. We had no idea. And I think that it comes down to 
um, being very humble in the fact that we didn't know, but we were thirsty for knowledge. So we did a few things um, like taking classes uh, at some of the local um you know, uh, Parsons, FIT, right? Those those are in our back door, which is we're very fortunate to, to have, but so many things are online now. There's also lots of courses that exist like lynda.com, right? That, uh, you know, you there is knowledge out there, much of which you don't have to pay for in that kind of initial beginner stuff, even YouTube. The other thing that we did um, was surround ourselves with a lot of really great mentors, um, and I think there's a lot of really great free resources out there for, you know, especially when you're starting um, score SBA, all these kind of places where you can go and you say, Hey, I have this business idea. What do you think? Or like, if it's more specialized, we had a fashion mentor, we had a business mentor and a lot of this stuff, people are, are excited about new ideas and new businesses and want to help. And so um, we just, you know, some of those people are still with us today. One of our mentors from from the Brooklyn Fashion Design Accelerator is still five years later is is you know just a personal mentor for the two of us. Um, and some of them have come and gone. And but it's really, I think, really, really important to to find those people to to float your ideas around and and surround yourself with people that know more about stuff than than you than you. Mm. Yeah. So when you're developing this, one thing that I've heard from other fashion and clothing brands and companies is that sizing is the the most one of the most biggest challenges. How were you able to kind of test or validate or sample the the kind of uh, products that you were making before going for a much larger production run? So we did something that we actually thought was pretty normal, but apparently is actually very unusual. Um, we created a fit party. So basically, we created our base size. And then we said, all right, we're going to grade it out and figure out, okay, how does that size then kind of go across our size range? And then we took our pattern maker um, and we invited a whole bunch of people over, gave them some, you know, drinks and food and said, hey, come try on this stuff. We're going to have a party. And one by one, people would go meet with our pattern maker and try on the shirts and we'd take photos and take measurements and and get they would give their feedback. And then the rest of the time, people were kind of socializing and looking at the new designs that were coming out with. And these were all people that were, you know, very, very interested in the business idea that we were growing. So they wanted to, you know like experience that, but also they were excited about the other people that were in the room, right? Because they were at a similar interest. And so that is something that I think at the very core of that start, we then started to snowball into creating this group of folks that knew about our business, that were excited about our business and were able to, we were able to tap into their interest, their knowledge and their, their feedback. And that's something that we have really tried to thread throughout our business is coming back to the people that, that care about the business, that are loyal customers, that um, have lots to say and continually ask them, what is it that they want? What, what is their feedback? Um, You know, Laura talked about the fact that we just did a focus group last night, right? just continually touching base because it's very easy to say, oh, this is definitely what people want. But if you don't ask them, you don't know. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. This this idea of a fit party that, that looking back on it, it makes a ton of sense, but I guess it's not common in, in that industry. So I guess it's similar to almost like a, a tasting party for like a food exactly. and beverage brand. Yeah. So I, and I think one of the, the cool things that you experienced was that there's kind of an ancillary benefit to all of this, which was the start of a community, which I think a lot of times when you're starting off a brand or a company for the first time, you're getting this feedback, but it's often just from the founders to a given customer, but the customer don't know each other but it sounds like you kind of built this organically and it's been helpful since then now when you were going through this these kind of this fit party were there multiple fit parties multiple iterations like how did you work towards a a a kind of a um a a model or a sample that was ready for production yeah i mean i think the fit party was a component of it i think uh the initial development of the prototype we spent a lot i think we probably spent a year working on the initial prototype before we even got to the fit party, to be honest with you, we, because it was so important for us to get the fit right because the customer, you know, the ultimate pain point was around fit, right? They saw stuff that they liked, they knew, and also our customer is, you know, fit is an incredibly important component, right? They have strong feelings around how things sit on their body, like where they sit on their body, the positions of where things 
touch, you know, so we, you know, we basically bought a bunch of different types of shirts and we iterated over, we want this thing to be like this. We want to remove this button here. We want to keep the collar tighter here. Like, so for example, like on men's shirts, um, the collar is often very structured, sits, you know, very nicely because it's often worn with neckwear. On women's shirts, the collar is often floppy and super shapeless because people don't wear neckwear. So for our customer, they some of them like to wear neckwear, like a tie or a bow tie. It was really important that we made the collar in a way that it could hold hold its uh, you know hold its weight. The other thing is the circumference. So like a collar on a men's shirt, it's made for a men's neck. So a woman puts on a men's shirt, the circumference is massive. So for us, we were iterating on all these tiny little details that you wouldn't even think about to make sure that we made the perfect shirt for our customer, right? Like our customer, for example, doesn't really want the shirt to have a really silhouetted look and be super feminine. And so a lot of women's shirts have darts because they basically help give that accentuated curved look. And so for us, we had to create a shirt that didn't have darts, but still was really flattering. So there was a lot of things that we had to do even before we got to that prototype for the fit party to get it to be a place where we felt good about it. Um, after the fit party, you know, we really worked hand in hand with our pattern maker to make those like final adjustments, get the feedback um, and, and get it into production. But I think there was a lot of work that went into like almost months before we even got it on different types of body types before we even got to that point. And I think we feel quite confident about the, the current fit of our shirts. And I think we did a good job. However, that said, we're currently doing an evaluation of basically our size 14 upward um, to say this is something, you know, we really pride ourselves on on being more size inclusive. And so it's something that we need to continue to uh, reevaluate and, you know, what can we do to make that area better? And so um, that's something that we're spending a lot of time and energy on right now. Yeah. So when you get this kind of feedback, I think the example that that you gave was that that you realized that you don't want darts. But I'm assuming your your customer is not saying that they might just say, "I don't want a feminine silhouette." So when you're getting this kind of feedback, that is that needs now needs to be translated to actual like technical specifications on your clothing. How do you how do you do this? How do you get the feedback that's probably highly qualitative and then turn into something that that needs to go that a manufacturer would understand? Yeah, I mean, that's part of the job of a pattern maker. Um, so for us to say, hey, this is what we want. And and the first few folks that we were thinking about working with weren't the right ones because in their mind, we had to have darts. You know, they were very much thinking of fashion as in the binary of men's and women's wear. And we were very much saying this is what we are trying to create does not exist. And you need to be on board with understanding that in order to create what it is that we want. And so we've been really fortunate to find the right partners over time. Um, and some of that is, you know, there's been some, certainly some bumps in the road um, where all of a sudden, you know, one day the the person at the factory uh, where we were making some shirts uh, was out sick or whatever and so someone else was in charge of the buttons and then they saw that it was a a woman's shirt quote unquote so they changed the size of the buttons to be in line with what is on a a, a quote unquote woman's dress shirt and I got the the sample back in I said what in the world has just happened on the sheet it says very clearly here it's supposed to be an 18 line bind like oh well it was a woman's shirt I was like but I have specifically said this and so you know every now and then there's these little bumps but um, you know over the course of the years we found the right partners. Yeah, I think this is this important point, which is that I've been hearing more when it comes to brands and companies that are creating uh, basically new new product categories. And when you are going to manufacturing, you cannot settle. You cannot necessarily just depend on them saying yes or no. And you kind of have to push the boundaries a bit because, again, it's something that they have not done before. Now, how do you how do you go about finding a manufacturer that not just understands your vision, but then also make sure the executor carry through on it? Yeah, we're really, we're really lucky. We've got, so we manufacture primarily in three different countries right now in the US, in Italy, and in India. Um, And so we've got a point person on the ground in Italy and in India who are, you know, they're the, the 
first point of contact where they're already, when we're starting to work with a new factory, they're saying, you know, this is what the brand is. This is what they're trying to achieve. You know, do you understand what it is that they're trying to achieve? You know, are you on board with this? Because ultimately they have to be invested in what we're trying to do from, you know, uh, like, not just like, oh, yes, I want to like, you know, make this product, but they need to get it and they need to care about it because it is different. Mm. Now, when you were launching, how many patterns or fabrics did you launch with? Three different patterns of shirts. We did one, we did two shirts. We basically did a short sleeve shirt and a long sleeve shirt. And I think we probably did five or six different fabrics in either, but we did basically did it as a pre-order Kickstarter. So there wasn't like a ton of, uh, there was no issue of buying too much inventory and not selling it because we'd done it as a pre-order Kickstarter campaign. But remember, we 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 made basically, and then we doubled up so that we had some inventory for so that we then were able to okay. So we sold basically, we say what say it was. I can't remember right. We sold say we sold two hundred shirts and then we made four hundred so that we for you know had to the ability to then the ability to then launch our website with product. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Makes sense. Yeah, we'll talk about a Kickstarter in a second. Now, when you were when you were deciding what to what kind of fabrics to to launch with, how did you decide? Like, what was the thought process behind what would be a you know a popular pattern or fabric? I mean, I think it's a it's. It's a lot of things. I think that to this day, it's still kind of, I think a lot of people pay a lot of money for fashion forecasting and looking at runway and figuring all of that stuff out. But I think for us, it's always about like, what do we like? What are our customers like? What is the patterns that I think that, you know, we see that we're going to, we're going to, we think are going to do well. You know, in the beginning we were buying stock fabrics. So we would like go to fabric vendors, like look at the fabric, see if we liked it. Now we're a little bit bigger and we're able to buy prints and that we like and then get those printed onto fabrics. But at the end of the day, it's still a guessing game, right? It's like, how do you know that the product that you're making is going to be bought by your customer? I think you just have to really understand your customer and know what your customer likes and, uh, you know, make that decision. And we do still do market research around like, uh, you know, with, you know, through social media, we'll do like Instagram polls, like which fabric should we choose? Which color should we choose? So that we're still staying on pulse with what our customers looking for. The other thing is we are creating a product in some capacity that has existed previously, right? Our our product is menswear inspired, right? Some some people create a brand, right? And it's this completely new thing. Our customers have been going to the men's section for years and years and years and saying, ah, I want that shirt with the elbow patch, but they don't make it in a way that fits my body because it's flaring out at the hips and it's gaping at at my chest. But we're saying, ah, we agree. We like that and we can make it. So, you know, there we don't always have to recreate the wheel with what we're creating. You know, the, these, the tweed blazers that we run, that's something that's been around for, you know, hundreds of years, right? And so we're just saying, hey, yeah, you can have that too. We'll make it for you to fit. Yeah, I think there's a good lesson in there about how you don't always have to be invent something from from complete scratch and you should look for what, your customers already kind of already want in our, but might already be on the marketplace to some degree with, you know, obviously your particular you know, tweaks to it. So I think that's an important point to, to remember that you don't always have to invent something from scratch. Now I want to talk about the, the Kickstarter campaign the results of it were over 300 backers raising over $36,000. Tell us more about the, this campaign. Like what kind of preparation went into, into it before you, you launched the campaign? It's interesting because we it's been, I think, what, five years since we did the Kickstarter campaign. So it's hard to remember exactly what what it was like. But I remember it was a lot of preparation, right? Like, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to do a crowdfunding campaign and, you know, ask them questions like, well, do you have this? Do you have a video? Oh, no. I, I, you know, so I think that we really wanted to make sure that we were strategically buttoned up with everything before we ran the campaign. So making sure we knew which products we were going to offer, making sure that our prototypes were ready, making sure that we had a really amazing uh, video that told our brand story. I think that was the kind of key to everything is making sure that we had the brand strategy locked in before we ran the Kickstarter so that we weren't just selling a product, we were selling a brand. 
Um, and I think we spend a lot of like legwork ahead of that time thinking about who's the customer, what's their pain points, what's the customer profile, like how do they feel, like what is our brand going to do to solve that so that when we did launch, it was a very obvious like brand narrative and story that people could get behind. And I think that we saw that with the launch of the Kickstarter that people really did really did get it. They did feel like, wow, oh, wow, I see myself in that brand and I, I want to support it. Um, so I think like from a strategy perspective, that was really, really important. And then logistically, it's all the stuff of setting up the, the page and making sure of the, the, a good video. And then, but the thing that I think that people don't think about when the Kickstarter, when the Kickstarter was over, we're like, oh, great. We have all these backers. And it was like, okay, go make the product, you know, but then it was like, when we had made the product, we had to ship the product and we had no idea how to ship the product. That's not true. You are remembering incorrectly yes. because I was the one that did all the research on how in the world to get these people the product. So, um, so what I was going to say is actually what we did is where I think a lot of businesses um, sometimes lose out on the success of their these crowdfunding campaigns is thinking about actually how you make the product and how you get the product to people um, because they're so focused on the front end. So we had already set up the factory that we were planning on using. We had already sourced all the fabric. We had we had spoken with the, the places that we were going to get it from, created the purchase orders, like set all, setting that all up so that as soon as we figured out exactly how much we had sold, we were able to press go. And then also doing a bunch of research on what was the type of packaging that we are going to use? What was the type of uh, distribution we were going to use? Was it UPS, USPS, FedEx, whatever the platform is that you utilize? Because what I think there's a, a miss opportunity and making sure that you're pricing things correctly. And that doesn't mean we did it all correctly, but I, I think that what happens often is if you say, ah, it's, I'm going to sell this shirt on a Kickstarter for X amount of dollars. And then you realize, oh, I completely forgot about how much does it cost to get to the the to the customer and what am I going to put it in? Because that if you're putting in a poly mailer versus a box, right, all of a sudden the cost is completely different. All those kind of questions are really important to ask yourself prior to to doing the crowdfunding campaign. Yeah, let's talk about that. I think there's an important one about pricing because yeah, like you're saying, that a lot of people will will come off the kind of high of like a successful campaign and realize, wow, there's a lot of hidden costs that we didn't uh, anticipate. So tell us more about those. You mentioned some around shipping and packaging. What are some other kind of hidden costs that that, that came your way after the, the Kickstarter campaign? I think costing in general is challenging, <laughs> especially for a physical product. You know, there's, you know, you've got the fabric and the buttons and the hang tags and the packaging and the, the other, one of the hidden costs in fashion is often what's called grading and marking. So you basically make a pattern, but then you have to make, make sure that you know what it's going to look like in multiple sizes. If you forget about that, like, like in a brand, we have, we have 13 sizes. So the grading and marking costs can be expensive. Um, so I think, I don't know. I don't know. I think forget forgetting the like from a crowdfunding perspective, but I think one of the hidden costs that customers aren't generally aware of that's happening right now is an increase in shipping costs. Mm -hmm. um, and that comes from literally like when you're bringing goods into the country or, you know, it's traveling around the country if you're if you're uh, producing domestically and the cost from a like either you're, you have a warehouse distribution center or whatever, whoever is doing it doesn't matter. The cost is increasing. And there's also a lot of things that are um, arriving in a longer lead time or are not arriving. And so when it comes down to it as a consumer, when I place an order from that brand and it, I, paid, you know, 40 bucks to get it expedited and it doesn't show up. Who do you think is eating that cost? It's not USPS. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> um, so that's something that we really had to contend with over the course of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, there's definitely a price difference between that local carrier, that USPS versus someone like a UPS and FedEx. And there certainly is a, an increased reliability, but there is also a significant price difference, especially when you are um, shipping a smaller number of goods. So as we've gotten quantities of scale, we've been able to move more of those packages over to a UPS 
um, which definitely helps with some of that stuff. Because when you lose a you know five hundred and seventy five dollars suit, it's not just the the shipping cost that you've lost. Mm. So you know, speaking of the the pandemic, we, I want to talk about the, the launching of your suiting collection, which which uh, based on what you told me was was one of the, the best things and also. Uh, not so great things in the past and past year, year and a half. So tell us more about that. So you launched your suits February, 2020, right before the, the, the world shut down. Tell us more about your experiences over 2020 with, with, um, that, that product launch. Yeah. And we're really excited about the product launch. It'd been something that been, we'd been working towards for a long time. We always knew we wanted to make a suit because the impetus impetus of the brand was all around us finding suits for our wedding. Um, but we wanted to feel ready, find the right partner, make sure that we could make it in a way that we felt, confident about. So we were really excited about um, our suiting. We spent a lot of time working on the fit, finding the right partner, finding the right, uh, you know, materials. So yeah, we launched it in February of 2020. It was like gangbusters. You know, the, the month was crazy. It was like our best sales month ever. We were feeling like, so like, wow, we've totally validated this product. We're, we're ready to kind of like lock this in. It's going to be like the flagship product. And then of course, you know, COVID starts. I mean, like, of course, who could have predicted that? Yeah, COVID. <laughs> and then we're like, end of February, we're like, uh, COVID, is this going to be a problem? I don't know. I think I was kind of like, I think it, I think we'll be okay. And then I remember early March, we were like, mm, this doesn't feel so good. And then by mid, uh, mid-March, we were no longer going to the office. Everybody was working from home or gone, you know, gone to their retreat somewhere in, you know, some country house somewhere and sales were basically like, like radio silence. And so we kind of had this crazy, you know, high and low moment where we were so feeling so good about the suiting. I remember it it was like mid-February and I was already talking about the sell-through and like reordering, like making a reorder. We were like, wow, we're going to have to reorder this so soon. This is amazing. And then, like I said, like it was like screech silence to nothing. And so I think that was really challenging. Um, But also there were so many other things going on at that moment that it was kind of like, we just had to, to, what were we going to do? We had to just kind of like knuckle down and, it was 2021 was, a, or sorry, 2020 was a great year for us to take a step back from the business and really make sure that we had all of our systems and that were efficient and evaluated, that we made, we had all of our, the people that we had employed, that we had a good strategy around that. So I think that we, we always knew that the suiting was a great product and it would come back, but we just knew that we were going to have to kind of like take a little pause for 2020 and just kind of get through the year. And we did. And it did exactly that. As soon as um, uh, our we have a very strong New York customer base. And as things went from being pretty apocalyptic here to, um, you know, this this past summer, especially in the beginning of the summer prior to Delta, um, there was a lot of renewed sense of, you know, normalcy, even within the, you know, really obviously continued terrible times. And and by no means are we out of a pandemic, but you were starting to see folks that maybe they had originally planned a wedding for 200 people or 100 people. And they were saying, all right, well, it's now been a year and I really love this person and I want to commit to them. So we're going to have a ceremony of 30 people but they still needed that suit and they still wanted to, you know, get dressed and that kind of dressed up and that kind of stuff um, for that experience. So we then started to see people as they were starting to do more things coming back and then have had a very strong, uh, strong sales over the summer. Um, And so what the fall holds for us, I can tell you as the person that runs our production, uh, making projections is a little bit of a rolling of the dice. Um, but I think we're optimistic and, and hopeful for not just our business, but also for the state of the world. Yeah. And I think we were kind of lucky. We, we're a D2C company and we don't have a brick and mortar store, right? So a lot of these companies, you know, that had, you know, say like multiple retail stores and they're you know, they're stuck paying rent on these multiple retail stores. Like we don't have a lot of overhead. And so for us, yes, it was, it was unfortunate and there was less sales than we would have wanted, but we still didn't have to do the crazy pivot that tons of these businesses had to do where they were like, Oh my God, I suddenly need to like really focus on my e-commerce. And they're doing this crazy dance of like suddenly trying to get their online store up and running, figure out how to do paid ads, figuring out how to do paid search. Like we were already doing all of that stuff. So 
and our customers were already doing online shopping. So there wasn't this massive shift that I think a lot of businesses had to make away from physical retail. And then the other thing is um, what I was going to say, a lot of businesses you know, did this crazy pivot, right? Maybe they were making like super formal wear and they suddenly were like, oh, we're not going to survive. We're going to just start making like sweatpants. And, you know, a lot of people asked us, like, are you going to pivot? Like, you're going to start making like athleisure. And I don't know where as a small brand, first of all, as a small brand, it's hard enough to make one product or to make any products to suddenly pivot your entire business towards like a completely different uh, direction is really challenging. And so I think strategically, we just said, you know what, we're going to, we know this is going to come back. We know we're going to continue to do well weddings and people are, people are going to go back to the office. People are going to start going back to events again. People are going to start going to weddings again. Let's just hunker down, make sure that we have all of our systems and all of our strategy and all of the things that we need as a good solid foundation of the business. And when things do return to normal or somewhat normal, we will be ready and we'll be there to capture the opportunity. Yeah. And I think despite this, you still mentioned to us that you were able to grow 30% year over year from 2019. What, what contributed to this? Yeah. I mean, I think people were still, people were still optimistic about where they were going to go. People still had to wear clothes, right? Just because they were at home doing a meeting didn't mean that they were, uh, you know, sitting naked, naked doing their Zoom meetings. They still had to wear. Although some people were. I mean, everyone was doing the whole, like your bottom, don't worry about your bottom half. Just make sure you look good on your top half. But people were still going to business meetings. They were still wearing clothes. You know, people were still buying clothes. Like it's not like everybody stopped wearing clothes clothes. Um, I think it's just that they've stopped buying stuff that they may have been more focused on wearing like outside, but we still, we're still selling lots of products and we still sold suits and we still sold former wear. Um, and so it was just that I think people were purchasing less than they would have or less frequently. Um, but we still were able to, you know, we were added new products to our line. We increased our volume you know, we increased our web traffic. We still just kept doing all the things that we were doing before. I just think that we didn't grow as much as we would have otherwise. Yeah, we're very fortunate. Yeah, one of the strategies that, that you took was to, rather than trying to pivot and trying to capture more kind of top line, more sales, you mentioned focusing on uh, making sure everything was buttoned up. And you talked about making improvements to your operations and systems. Can you say more about that? What what, what systems or what, what what procedures or operations were you making changes to? Yeah, I mean, firstly, one of the things that it's it's still an ongoing project, but we need we're an e-commerce site, and so it's really important that our website is like the best website that it can be possible. And so, um, you know, I kind of made the decision. You know, we've had our website for about four or five years. I think it's time for us to do a refresh, to you know, take advantage of new technology and you know, uh, you know, different types of websites and update the website. And so, we're going to have a new website launching in about two weeks. So that's something that we took a step back on and, and worked on. It's taken a little bit longer than I would have liked, but as all good things do, you know, they take a little while. Um, the other thing that we were doing before, which now seems kind of crazy when I think about it, we were doing all of our returns manually and like we're a clothing company. We get returns like the it's it, 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 well, we also it, offer free shipping yeah, and we, returns. We so offer we free shipping and returns. So we get returns and somebody has to process the return. They have to steam it. They have to pack it back up. They have to do all those things. But we were doing all of that. Like so if a customer wanted a return, they had to email us. We would send them a label and they would send it back to us, which was a ridiculous amount of customer service time. Um, and so we we ditched that and we moved over to an automated return process that the customer can basically do themselves. Um, we just still have to do the processing on the back end, but that saved an enormous amount of time um, from a, from an internal operations perspective. So it was like things like that where we said, what are some systems and things that we are doing that are really inefficient and how can we do them in a way either using software or outsourcing them, um, things like that. We also implemented a online ticketing uh, for system for our customer service. And that's something that I think was a really good uh, way for us to, to continue to grow, right? Because in, instead of having one person holding all of the knowledge, it allows anyone to open it up and look at the, the chain of events, right, that has happened. You can see the customer's history. And that's something that, um, you know, it was very much 
there was, you know, three people in the office and in order for us to grow, that had to change. And I think that's been a really good implementation. Yeah. We're using gorgeous, uh, for the customer service now and we use loot returns, uh, for the return automated returns. Yeah, that's awesome. I was going to ask you what what applications you use for that. And so you mentioned that the the refresh is ongoing. the The redesign of the website is going to be launching soon. What are, What are some of the, the the changes or introductions that that you are you guys are making to to the website that you think is going to have a big impact on on sales? Well, firstly, it was designed mobile first, so I think that I mean it. At Google, I think two years ago, started mobile indexing. Uh, mobile site was indexed versus the desktop site. So it was really important to me that we had a really amazing mobile site. Um, And so the design was actually, it was designed mobile first and then extrapolated to desktop. So I'm really excited about the mobile site um, looking amazing. Also 70% of our traffic comes from mobile. So, which to me is kind of an amazing statistic, but it makes sense. Everyone's on their iPhone all the time. Um, So mobile first design. The other thing was page speed. I think one of the challenges with Shopify stores is, you know, you have all these amazing apps, right? That you can add on for every single possible thing, but adding apps really slows down your site and page speed is really, really important for search engine optimization. So it was really important to me that we got our page speed um, back up with a new site. We offloaded a lot of apps and made sure that they were developed in-house on the theme um, so that we could improve our page speed. Um, those were kind of the two things and just giving the brand an overall refresh, like our price point is relatively high. And so I think when you go to purchase from our, our website, there has to be an elevated look. It has to feel like you're, you know, getting your money's worth out of it. And so having it be like an elevated brand look and feel was really also important. Mm, awesome. So KieranFinch.com's website, K-I-R-R-I-N-F-I-N-C-H.com. And I'll leave you this last question. So you mentioned that you were taking a step back over the last year and a half to do an inventory of everything, to some degree, clean up the chaos of running a business, you know, nonstop for the last last uh, five, five-ish years. Now, looking forward, now that you've kind of spent time buttoning everything up, what do you think is the, what do you think, what do you think kind of the next opportunities have opened up for you because you've invested in these kind of foundational things and now are ready to maybe uh, tackle some, some bigger project? What's, what is that, the, the big project or the big pursuit that's coming next after this foundational, uh, this foundational round that, that you, you have gone through? I think one of the things that all these changes have uh, we've implemented have allowed us to scale much faster. Um, we've also hired a bunch of new people to the team. Um, and because we have those systems in place, it's going to allow us to really grow um, at, at a much faster pace. Um, we also, I feel like we're, we're in a good place with our formal wear. Um, and that's a really nice offering that we are now able to kind of turnkey in a really great way and say, okay, this is like, this is the suit. Um, but now we can add on to that, right? We've established the supply chain. We've, we've, we've got great relationships with those folks. Um, now it's taking that product that we've, we've figured out and adding, um, more options for people, adding potentially a, a curvy bottom, um, for our, our suit pants. Um, and one of the other places that we're really exploring, um, is developing out more of our casual, um, Offering so that our ultimate goal is to be a one one stop shop for folks that like to dress with a more masculine of center. And so when they come to us, they're saying, "Ah, okay, it's spring now. The weather's changing. Great, I want to you know put on a bomber jacket or whatever it is." Right? Um, we want to be able to provide those those product offerings to our customers. Awesome! Exciting times ahead. Thank you so much, Laura and Kelly. Thanks so much, Felix. Thanks so much for chatting. We really, really enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.